the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Mark Thiessen. And I'm Danielle Pletka. Welcome to our still new podcast, What the Hell is Going On? <laughs> so, who the hell are we talking to today? The person we are talking to today is Congressman Mike Waltz, who is a really, really interesting guy. We're going to talk to him about Afghanistan. And the reason why we asked him is, one, he's a good friend. But two, he has, I mean, hes he was a Green Beret. Uh, served on the front lines in Afghanistan on multiple deployments. He also served in the office of the Secretary of Defense under both Don Rumsfeld and uh, Robert Gates and and as an advisor to Vice President Cheney on counterterrorism. So he has seen this battle in Afghanistan in a way almost nobody else in Washington has. And so why why are we interested in turning back to Afghanistan? Uh, The real issue here is that we are We've been struck by the president's decision to invite the Taliban to Camp David to have negotiations. The president then walked away and said those negotiations are dead. But what is absolutely clear is that there is a, I think I'm right in calling it a rush to pull troops out of Afghanistan. Well, some people might say 18 years is not exactly a rush, Danny. Yeah, and and they would be right. On the other hand, Mark, if I may quote you— There is no actual rush. There's no pressure to get out of Afghanistan. So while it may be right that it's been 18 years, the only pressure seems to exist in the mind of the president of the United States. Why else would he have sat down with the Taliban in the week of 9-11? Well, first of all, I think partly the reason he wanted to sit down, he actually didn't sit down. He ended up not doing it. And it's interesting that he, you know, I think he's gotten a lesson in the reality of the enemies we face. You know, he wanted to sit down with the Taliban. They carried out a, uh, a terrorist attack that killed an American soldier and uh, basically said, well, we're not really that interested in speaking with you after all. And then he did the same thing with the Iranians. He said, you know, they had, he said he wanted to meet with the, he would be willing to meet with the Iranians at the UN General Assembly this week. And the Iranians launched an attack on Saudi Arabia that basically said, well, no, we're not that interested. So not hang on, everybody. Hang on, just hang on a second. And he's been really eager to meet with Kim Jong-un. And Kim Jong-un has launched missiles over our ally, Japan, where, by the way, we have troops stationed. And the president has said, eh, no big. He's right about that. There is a qualitative difference between those. But the point I'm trying to make is that that not everybody is as desperate to uh, sit down and have a photo op with Donald Trump as Kim Jong-un. But anyway, back to Afghanistan, because we're we're not talking about North Korea here. So, look, you're absolutely right that there's no pressure— for this withdrawal whatsoever. As we've discussed, during Mark Esper's confirmation hearing, not a single person asked him a question about when are we getting out of Afghanistan. Not a Republican, not a Democrat. Right. There's there, no the, popular... The notion that there is that there is this sort of cauldron, this boiling cauldron of pressure coming from the base, whatever that is, and pressuring the president of the United States to make a decision, get, get into bed with the Taliban just to do a deal, that's just not a thing. Exactly. And look, the, the, there's a myth out there that there's some sort of major isolationist sentiment among the moved into the Republican Party. And Republicans are not... Isolationist Republican voters, I mean, you know, people out in the uh, in the in the country, real Americans, as we call them here in Washington, or some of us call them Washington, are not 
isolationists. They're reluctant internationalists. They, they are willing to spend blood and treasure to defend this country. They want to kick anybody's ass who threatens us. But they also don't want to go and send their kids on nation-building missions and risk their lives for those kinds of things. So we, what's traditionally happened is the Republican presidents have led and they have made the case to their constituents and to the American people here are the consequences of failure and here are the consequences of success in this country and this is why we're here. And Mike Waltz can make those arguments in a way that few people can because he's been on the front lines. He's risked his life fighting these people and he's also been in the policymaking rooms. And so he can he, he's going to speak to this in a really interesting way, I think, for our listeners. I completely agree. But I want to come back to this reluctant internationalist. Look, there is nobody more than I who wants you to be right. And, you know, we have friends at, at the Center for American Progress who did some really interesting surveys out in, you know, the heartland of Americans and their attitudes towards foreign policy. And they reinforce the point that you make, which is that... So I'm right. Well, in in, in some ways, yes. In some ways, you are right. Uh, They don't like to be taken advantage of. They don't like highfalutin terms like uh, like the liberal international order. They don't know what that means. They don't want to be talked down to. But Mark... You know how important I think it is that we remain in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and that we assert ourselves on behalf of our allies in all over the world. But the key element here is that it requires the leadership of the president of the United Absolutely, States. Absolutely. I agree with You've, that. But uh, the president isn't going to do it. That's not who he is. And we've got to get through that. I mean, but look, again, the policies that we've had so far have not been catastrophic. He has not pulled out of Syria after saying that he was going to pull out of Syria. He's not pulled out of Afghanistan after saying he's going to pull out of Afghanistan because he doesn't want to lift the boot off of the terrorist necks. And, you know, the politics of it. No, because because his mouth and his brains and his policy are all conducting separate policies. Yes. Actually, yes. You know what? Let, Let me just give a not a not a defense but an explanation of Donald Trump's just call it a defense it always he is. campaigned as a non-interventionist who is going to end George Bush's wars and he used the exact same rhetoric on the campaign trail that Barack Obama did he said we got to stop focusing on nation building abroad and focus on nation building at home we spent x trillion dollars in the middle east and we should be spending that on roads and bridges and everything here but now that's not unique because every president since the end of the cold war starting with bill clinton and including George Bush, 43, and Barack Obama, and now Donald Trump, everyone has campaigned as a non-interventionist. And then when they get into office, uh, you know, Bill Clinton's state. Reality smacks him in the face. In the face and re- okay, so, you know, it's the economy stupid with Bill Clinton, and all of a sudden we're, we're fighting in Kosovo. But none of them we're, got as close as, as Donald Trump did to having the Taliban at, no at Camp David. Well, the, and, and I still believe that even though he said that process is dead, I still believe he's committed to drawing down our troops, which would be disastrous for us in Afghanistan. Well, you know, again, one, I would prefer if we're going to draw down some of our troops, I would prefer that it be done unilaterally and not in a deal with the Taliban and not and certainly not with giving these people who were literally people who were in Guantanamo Bay a couple of years ago invited to the Camp David. That's just a, that's just offensive to begin with. But you might be able to draw down some troops and you might be able to shift burden from us to some of our allies and reduce the cost. And he's not crazy to want to do that. But, you know, we have to stop thinking about Afghanistan as a place where there's a war, an endless war. And think of it as a place where we're going to have to be for a very long time because 
the danger is not that Donald Trump won't fulfill his campaign problems to pull out of Afghanistan. The danger is that he, is, he will fulfill it and that uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda will come back in and there'll be another attack on our homeland or American interests, and then he'll pay a really big political price. So one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to Mike Waltz is not only that he has this variety of very rich perspectives on our anti-terrorist actions in Afghanistan, it's because he actually has to stand up for re-election. He's got to persuade his constituency. He's actually out there on Fox News defending it. He's been out there both criticizing the president and praising the president when he's done the right thing. I think this is the the kind of person who you and I are looking for as a model in politics. No and doubt. so he's exactly the right person to talk to you about yeah, what's no doubt. going he on. He tweeted out, Mr. President, don't make the same mistake Obama made in Iraq. Let's fight these wars in Kabul so they don't follow us home. We must fight terrorists overseas or they will follow us home. We must stay on the offense. That is a unpopular message even in a lot of GOP circles today. And he's making it. He's succeeding as a politician making that in Congress. And he's making that argument. He's doing it successfully. He's getting reelected in a, in a Republican district in Florida. And, uh, and I think that he and a couple other people up there on Capitol Hill are really the hope in the long run for conservative internationalism. Amen. You know, one thing he proves to us is there are just lots of ways to be a hero. That's absolutely true. We were just up on Capitol Hill this morning talking with Congressman Mike Waltz in his office in the Cannon House office building. Here it is. Congressman Mike Waltz, thank you for joining us. Sure. Happy to be here. Well, first of all, I mean, we want to talk about Afghanistan, but particularly because you served in Afghanistan. You're in the military. Tell us first your journey to join the military and how you ended up in Afghanistan. Well, service was always for whatever reason under my skin. So I went to the Virginia Military Institute and then if suffering for four years and getting my head shaved and in college wasn't enough, then we went on to ranger school and eventually to special forces. And as we know, post 9-11, the horse soldiers, the Green Berets who led the invasion and overthrew the Taliban regime were, were an integral part. I had, I, had a, I think, a very unique experience in that I was a reservist. A lot of folks don't realize both the SEALs and Green Berets are in reserve units. Why that's important is my day job was actually helping craft the policy. So at first I was with Rumsfeld and then Secretary of Defense Gates, and then eventually over in the White House as Vice President Cheney's advisor uh, on counterterrorism and Afghan policy. In, in between, I would deploy. So it so was literally, fascinating... literally there I was in the White House Situation Room. Then fast forward, I had to be the only idiot in Washington that um, had to go actually execute the policy that I recommended. You better make sure it's right because it was my butt on the line. And then the fascinating part would then be coming back and saying, hey, boss, uh, I know what we intended. We were in the room when the president said, go this direction. I was just out on the ground the last year and we're doing the exact opposite. And so the book I wrote, Warrior Diplomat, was really examining how we get those disconnects in our policy to actual implementation. I did that back and forth uh, three times and then co-founded a company that was heavily involved in the advisory effort uh, out in Afghanistan as well. So I've, I've been out there a number of times as a civilian, which was great because I can go have dinner with parliamentarians, engage with ministers. I don't have the, you know, the kind of protective shackles and bubble that you do when you're in the military. So one way or another, I have been seeing this movie play out uh, over the last 18 years. So talk to us a little bit about some of the things that you, so you were making policy in Washington or advising people making policy in Washington and then going implementing the policy. Yep. Tell me some of the lessons that you learned on the ground 
that that policymakers in Washington ought to be uh, taking into account? Well, just how critical the sanctuary in Pakistan is was number one. Uh, no counterinsurgency, no war that I know of at that type in history has ever been successful when the enemy's leadership enjoys unfettered access to recruits, money, a place where it can go to rest and refit and continue the war. And that's what the Taliban, the Haqqani Network, Al-Qaeda have in Pakistan. And from a policy perspective, and certainly out on the ground, we've just never been able to, to really address that in an effective way. Number two, we've never fully been mobilized as a nation, I think, to take on this war. Uh, it has been in fits and starts under multiple administrations now for one reason or another. And you see this kind of evolution of uh, from a policy standpoint of we have to stay engaged. We really don't have a choice then a lot of frustration and how do we just get out and, and walk away from this thing. Unfortunately, I think that cycle has contributed to prolonging the war. What the Afghans need to hear, what our enemies need to hear is not so much troop numbers. They don't even know or can appreciate the difference in 8,000 or 18,000 or, or 30,000 troops. They need to hear the United States is with you. Our enemies can't outweigh us and that we are committed, much in the way that we've been committed to Germany, South Korea, the Philippines, Japan, we can go on and on, to creating an environment where the Afghans can stand on their own through their military primarily and through their security forces to prevent the resurgence of international terrorism groups. And I think that message has been missing. Uh, what they hear is America's leaving in one way or another. So everybody from village elders to ministers, to our enemies, begin hedging for what does a post-America South Asia look like. My message, whether it has been to this president or others, is we don't have a choice. The problem will follow us home. We can and should. I wrote a whole book on how we can do it better. But we don't have a choice to just walk away. We can't wish these wars away. That's what Obama did in Iraq. And we see what we got in ISIS. So we're going to want to ask you about uh, about the president's Camp David debacle. I can call it that, can't I? Uh, yes. But I'm interested in, in talking to you about the conflict itself, because sure. y you're right. You can say we haven't given it our all. We haven't mobilized the American people. We haven't committed the requisite number of troops. Our military is incapable of fighting two wars at a time. Mm -hmm. All of those are legitimate criticisms. But you know, we're actually about to put out a report at AEI um, by Catherine Zimmerman, who's part of our Critical Threats Project, that suggests that we're really not fighting these wars the right way. We are focused on the leadership of the Salafi jihadi movement and not focused on uh, and not focused on the circumstances that actually they exploit. Yeah. Now you mentioned Pakistan. There's plenty of uh, circumstances in Afghanistan. We can say the same about Iraq. We can say the same about sure. Yemen. So you know, when you think about this, do you think we're ever going to have what it takes to do what is necessary in? Afghanistan? So two, two points there. Uh, number one, I am happy. I, one, I look forward to the report. But two, let's have that debate on, on how we can do it better. Are we fighting this war the right way? Top down, bottoms up, looking at the drivers of instability. What I am trying to get Washington past is, are we engaged at all? This notion of too hard, too expensive, been there too long, and let's just pull the troops home are great sound bites. It sells well. Amer the American people are frustrated, and that's understandable. Uh, but so that's step one is 
do we stay engaged versus how do we stay engaged? And then more broadly, look, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Iraq, Yemen, we are in a war, whether we like it or not, against glo a global extremist movement. And I do think we're lacking a broader strategy of how do we undermine the ideology? What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at, I mean, there were terrorist groups in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that were Shining Path in Peru, the Red Brigades, we can go on, that recruited in the name of communism. Why can't those groups recruit today? Because the ideology is defunct, unless, mostly defunct, for the large part, unless you ask Maduro or AOC or- uh, I was about to say- or, Yeah, mostly defunct. Other comparable ask, leaders. Yeah, other, yeah. other comparable, or, or, or the Castro regime. However, uh, the point is, is we had a concerted national effort to undermine and discredit and show the ideology for what it is. And I think we need the same thing with Islamic extremism. What does that look like? I mean, we could probably fill a whole nother podcast, but one, uh, I think, pillar would be girls' education and women's empowerment. We need to get at that out of the humanitarian realm and make that a squarely a national security issue with the force of the national security community behind it. If you look at societies, not to oversimplify, but if you look at societies where women are thriving in business, politics, uh, civil society, they don't have a huge extremism problem. I mean, it's really, I think the correlation is, is really very interesting. People ask me all the time, okay, what does victory look like? I think victory looks like women marching in Riyadh and in Tehran and in Sana'a and others. That's, that's, a way that it that it looks, uh, and that's not nation building. That doesn't require, I think, five hundred thousand U.S. troops on the ground. Right, it's uh, cheaper. It is. It's not only the right thing to do, but I also think it squarely fits in how we are going to one element of how we undermine Islamic extremism. Until we have that broader strategy, we're going to be fighting these individuals. Let wars. me let me push back on you as a devil's advocate. Sure. Okay? So. You, you have incredible credibility to say this because you actually put your own life on the line mm -hmm. for, the, for, the, for this. But a lot of American parents will look at what you just said and say, look, I'm willing to send my kid to risk his life to make sure that those people don't hit us here at home. Yep. I'm not willing to send my kid to risk his life for women's empowerment in Afghanistan. Sure. Why, what, what's your answer to that parent? So there's, that's, why I, that's why I preface of saying that doesn't need 500,000 troops on the ground. It needs American leadership. That's diplomatic. That's economic. That's informational. That's a number of things. We didn't have half a million troops on the ground to discredit communism uh, between 1945 and, and 1995. Uh, so I think the American people, one, need to be led. This needs to be explained. Uh, they need to hear more than the wars are too hard and too long. They are, but also a debate on how we're going to do them better. And I do think uh, it is worth, uh, you know, as a Green Beret who's done this, and we put five Green Berets in Arlington National Cemetery, just in the last two weeks, uh, that we must continue the fight. I would rather fight this fight in kinetically in Kandahar and Kabul and Damascus than in Kansas City. Yeah. It will follow us home. So that's point one. Point two is the broader strategy doesn't necessarily require a military solution. It requires U.S. leadership. And those women will never thrive in those societies when all they hear is America is leaving and going to abandon you because that just pulls the rug out from everything they're trying to do. So Mike, I, I love hearing you say what you're saying right now. Why are not more Republicans saying what you're saying right now? Well, I know uh, <laughs> uh, folks like Liz Cheney, Jim Banks, Lindsey Graham, uh, I could, uh, Adam Kinzinger, they're all Republicans who are saying this. However, 
I draw a correlation to the record low amount of veterans we have serving in the Congress. We have gone from 80% in the late 1970s down to 15% today. Wow. Uh, we're at a record low in our nation's history in terms of Republicans serving and in Congress people serving. So I think that lack of experience overseas, I think explains a lot of why you're not hearing this message. So let's talk about President Trump. As you said, you understand that you know people are frustrated uh, with what has be- has come to be called you know these endless wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I, I don't think they are endless wars, and uh, you know if you look at the casualty rates, obviously as you say, you know every single life matters. On the other hand, these pale in significance when we compare them to previous conflicts, whether Vietnam or yeah. Korea, yeah. or certainly you know a day in the Second World War. Right. Uh, that being said, we understand where Donald Trump is coming from. So let's talk about the negotiations with the Taliban. There's a legitimate government that we helped stand up in Afghanistan. Why are we negotiating with the Taliban? Great question. <laughs> Great question, and a question I've been asking as well of, of the State Department. I want to rewind a little bit, though, on, on the frustration. It, it is worth reminding, because I think a lot of Americans don't fully realize, they've just been there so long, that we have 30,000 troops in South Korea, 50,000 troops in Japan since World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still have thousands and thousands in Germany. Heck, we still have a battalion sitting in the Sinai monitoring the Suez Canal. So if our goal is to reduce expense and our goal is to bring a few thousand troops home, 3,000, 5,000, what have you, then I think those countries are far more capable of standing on their own. I don't necessarily agree with that goal, but if that is your goal, then I think those countries are far more capable than a country where half the world's terrorist organizations still exist and are capable of taking that country over again. And if we have to fight our way back in, it is going to be far more costly in blood and treasure uh, on the back end, not to mention whatever attack would emanate back here at, at home. In terms of the talks, I don't understand if, again, if the goal was to reduce our footprint or to reduce our cost, why we don't just have that conversation with the Afghan government, period, right? Um, All of these types of wars eventually have to end in some type of political solution. So that's fine. Talks for the sake of talks, I don't have an issue with. But the Taliban have demonstrated zero, none, interest in truly securing peace, as demonstrated by the multiple attacks, as demonstrated by the the special forces soldiers that we're still putting in the ground as a result of Taliban attacks. Uh, They refuse to enter into a ceasefire. They refuse to honor, even speak to the Afghan government, much less honor the Constitution. I think their agenda is very clear, and that is to sow discord. Eventually, there will be what I worry about, and this is my point, is actually the situation can get worse. Uh, we We can go backwards from the current status quo into an Afghanistan that slides into civil war, with ethnic tensions that right now are just barely under the surface, on the precipice of elections that are always difficult. And if that happens, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Haqqani network will take advantage of the seams. So you asked the State Department, to paraphrase the name of our podcast, what the hell? Yeah. What'd they say? (laughs) A lot of radio silence. Basically, uh, behind the scenes and off the record, that they feel like they, um, that 
we will draw down and they are trying to create as soft as, uh, of a landing as possible. But again, I keep making the point that it can make the situation far worse. That will actually demand more uh, and a more difficult American intervention. So, as Barack Obama found in Iraq. As Barack <laughs> Obama found in Iraq. So my message above line has been to the president, we, you cannot be to Afghanistan what Obama was to Iraq. And for our listeners, those, those buzzes, we're in Congressman Waltz's office on Capitol Hill, and those yeah. are the, uh, the buzzes, buzzes to go, on the floor. Buzzes to go vote, yes. Um, Actually, Congress is in session now. Yeah. So you, you were on, you led the team, uh, the search and rescue team for Bo Bergdahl, the, uh, the, the deserter yes. who, uh, yeah. who, who left and was captured by the Taliban. Right. And, and we're very critical of the Obama administration's decision to release five senior Taliban leaders from Guantanamo Bay in exchange for this American deserter. We were negotiating with those five people yes. in, in, uh, in, in Qatar, Qatar yes. and they were among the Taliban leaders who were probably going to be coming to Camp David. Did you ever think when you were leading that, that uh, mission that you would see the day that senior yeah. Taliban leaders would make their way from Guantanamo Bay to Camp David? Nor did I ever think I would see Bergdahl celebrated as a hero in the Rose Garden by President Obama uh, no, it, it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. What were they thinking? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think the president was being uh, poorly advised, very poorly advised by, by folks in its state. Yeah. Um, can I just say on the Bergdahl piece, I just want to correct because it's obviously I have a lot of skin yeah. uh, in that game uh, and saw soldiers lost and was actually the first. My first appearance on Fox News was I was the first one to come out and say, time out, not a hero put up your ticker tape parade, here's what really happened. He did not uh, desert and was captured by the Taliban. He defected to the Taliban. Really? He deliberately went to them and was actively working with them. And that's part of the story, I think, that is, has gotten a little lost in the shuffle. I was on the Serial podcast uh, uh, with Lauren and, um, and, and tried to make the point that despite what you could prove in court, there were tens of thousands of soldiers that didn't have the medevac that they needed as quickly, didn't have the close air support, didn't have the intelligence support across the entire theater because it was all devoted to look for that one soldier because we knew he would be a huge propaganda victory for uh, uh, for the Taliban. And I think it is an, it's just an outrage that he's walking free right now when American soldiers are dead that we're looking for him. So I wanna hit you with a couple quick questions. Sure. Um, Afghan elections. What do you think? I think the United States needs to send a clear message that we support the process and that we support the outcome of a free and fair process. What I worry about is many of the, uh, the ethnic minority contenders withdrew because of this peace process are now not running and are now not going to honor what comes out of this election. And if you remember when President Ghani was elected Five years ago, we had to step in in a very forceful way to keep the kind of the wheels from coming off the bus of that of that government. And I think we're going to need to be prepared to do so again. And I worry that we're not. And what I the canary in the coal mine that I watch is the Afghan army, which is the most multi-ethnic institution in the country. And if the politics start fracturing too much, and then the army begins fracturing, I think it's I think that could be the beginning of a huge mess on our hands. We have to have a local partner to operate against these terrorist organizations. Do you believe that the talks with the Taliban are dead, as the president has said? Uh, I believe the president's intent 
to minimize our footprint is not. And so how that plays out, I don't know. What I have asked the Afghans is for them to get, obviously they need to get through these elections. If President Ghani is who is standing on the other side, for them to take control of the narrative and to come here with their own plan of how they can reduce the U.S. footprint and reduce U.S. expenditures in line with the Commander-in-Chief's wishes, but for them to control the process and present a plan to us and to enter in that dialogue from their perspective. Leave the Taliban out of it. Why do you think the president is so dead set on pulling troops out of Afghanistan? There is no political pressure whatsoever in the country for doing this. Yet the president's, and, and all the risk to the president is by doing the pullout. Because there's nobody pressuring him to do it, yeah. but if he does do it, and the tele- and Al Qaeda makes a That's resurgence, right. it's then he, it's, on his watch. it's on his watch. So I, the, I the political know. calculus makes no sense. I so, think he's getting. I think he's getting bad advice. I think uh, my colleague over in the Senate, Rand Paul, is is far too, you know is has far too much of his ear. Not to mention, I've gone round and round with Tucker Carlson and and others. It is easy to wish these wars away. It is hard to then talk about what next. And I completely agree with you. I mean, well, the enemy to gets his a vote. credit, <laughs> the enemy will get, and the enemy will vote. I mean, they have, in no uncertain terms, said they will hit us again. But to the president's credit, we haven't had another San Bernardino. We haven't had another uh, Pulse nightclub attack because he's kept his foot on ISIS's neck. And as soon as you lift it off, uh, we will have, we will follow us home. And I agree with you. So what's, if you were in the Oval Office now, so the, we, the president is, however he got there, he's in the right place now, which is the talks are off. Right. Uh, he's put a pause on, on, on the withdrawal plans. If you were in the Oval Office sitting with the president right now, what would you advise him as a way forward to Afghanistan? We need to, with the elections pending, we need to keep the situation from going bad to worse if the government becomes unglued as a result of a, you know, having an election in the middle of a war. Elections are difficult, but they're going to be even more difficult there. And when we get past there, I would love to see between the elections and the State of the Union a recommitment to a long-term presence. I think the pieces of it are right in terms of you have a counterterrorism piece and then you have an advisory piece that builds the Afghan security forces so eventually they can take on their own security. Uh, because the message they need to hear, our enemies need to hear, is you can't outweigh us. Uh, meanwhile, we have mechanisms to hold the Afghans accountable for the funds that we're putting in place. His South Asia strategy, I thought, was right because it had a, a Pakistan component in it as well. It just was never implemented. Uh, that's what I'd love to see a recommitment to. Perfect segue. I wanted to ask you about Pakistan mm-hmm. because... One of the reasons, as you rightly say, that we've never touched on Pakistan, including after 9-11, including when we found Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, one of the reasons we've never done it is because it's really hard. Yep. It's the hard piece. It Afghanistan, hard piece. people don't know. Afghanistan is the easier piece. Yep. Do you have any thoughts? Well, it's, not all, it's, the, it's the harder piece and also, put it to you this way, Population Iraq, where we have you know, struggled mightily, uh, 25 million. Population Afghanistan, 30 million. Population Pakistan, 210 million with the possibility of loose nukes. So, and, and there is a direct kind of causality. If Afghanistan devolves into chaos, it will drag Pakistan with it. All the more reason that we need to stay engaged in the reason. I could just tell you my own experience at a senior policy level. The two times I've seen the Pakistanis respond the most were when we went cross-border in 2008 in a Navy SEAL raid that went after some senior leaders, and then, of course, the Osama bin Laden raid. And the Pakistani military and intelligence service came to the table in a real way 
and said, what do we have to do to make that never happen again? And we got some very important concessions. And so again, we don't need millions of soldiers on the ground. There are ways to put the Taliban leadership at risk and in ways that the Pakistanis are, will be forced to choose, like we did after 2001. You can work with us on this, or we're going to do this on our own. One final question, then we'll sure. wrap up. So when you talk this way about our engagement in Afghanistan, our engagement in, in Syria, which I assume you know, we didn't talk about Syria, but you know, keeping our boot on the, on, the, on the neck of ISIS, yeah. how does this play in your district? Because the you know we hear there's a debate whether are Republicans becoming more isolationist voters or are conservative voters really reluctant internationalists who need to be led. I find a real I find a real age difference. So the veterans I have an older district in in North Florida and the veterans who served around the world they understand that when America doesn't lead and leaves a vacuum, bad things fill the void. A lot of the younger conservatives, yeah, it, you know it. If I have more than three minutes to get past the sound bites of too hard, too difficult, endless wars, let's get out mm-hmm. and explain to them the, the consequences and that the people like Rand Paul throwing those sound bites out really don't have a plan for what next. And then I remind them of what Obama did. If I, if I can have that more fulsome conversation, kind of the light bulb, the light bulb goes on. And then it becomes a conversation of how do we lead? I mean, this, really, this is, for my time here, the, the broad question is, how do we deal with terrorism, deal with China, Russia, and rogue regimes overlaid with $23 trillion in debt moving forward? Yeah. And that is the problem that one way or another we are going to have to solve from a national security standpoint. What you're saying is a little bit worrisome, though, because what it's saying is that the older conservatives, the older voters who have who have lived through these experiences uh, get it, yep. and the younger voters are not. What does that say for the future? Well, that's it? also t- part and parcel of why I'm pushing for national service. We could talk about that for another time. That's not <laughs> mandatory. It's not the military, but it's getting people out serving again with other parts of American society and in a way that gives them some perspective. Well, Mike, we would thank, love to talk about that. We'd love to have you on again to do that. You thank you for your time so much for and for your service. Yeah, amazing yes, service. Thank you. So, Danny, that was a great interview with Mike. And I'm just, first of all, I'm just so happy that he's in Congress and is becoming, so quickly becoming a leader on these issues and speaking out and developing a, a high profile, speaking out for U.S. engagement in the world. He's saying things that are uh, that are true and unpopular with courage, which is that you know, he understands the frustration that the president and many Americans have with the fact that we've been in Afghanistan for 18 years and there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. But we've been there for a long time for a reason, because that's where the attacks of 9-11 happened. And if we, he understands that if we take our boot off of the terrorist necks, it's not going to be that it's not going to be another 18 years until they attack us. They're going to regroup, reconstitute, and just look at what happened, how quickly it happened in Iraq when Barack Obama took it, where there were only 700 ISIS fighters left in Iraq when Barack Obama pulled out and they were constituted. We're not even close to that, that level of success uh, in Afghanistan. If we pull out completely, it's going to come follow us home very, very quickly. I couldn't agree with you more. And the point you made about Pakistan, I thought was very trenchant, which is that, you know, if we give up in Afghanistan, it's not just going to be the Afghans that, that, that suffer from it. It's going to be Pakistan and the Pakistanis are going to be part of the problem. And they're not a, a small backwater. This is a country of 200 million people with nuclear weapons. One of the things that I, I think struck both of us was his comment about how few members, uh, how, how few veterans there are in, yes. in Congress. You know, when you and I were on the Hill, I mean, the president of the United States, 
George H.W. Bush outgoing when I started on the Hill was a veteran of World War II. Bob Dole, Republican leader in the Senate, veteran of World War II. And you could go on and on and on. Now, of course, times change. But these are people who knew the world. These are people who knew service. These are people who understood that in order to protect the homeland, sometimes you've got to go and fight missions overseas that that don't always seem like they directly hit at the interests of the American people. Though we, though we should keep in mind that not all veterans are internationalists and for continuing yeah, no You've got Tulsi Gabbard, uh, who is a veteran in Afghanistan and who is like— And a uh, shameless and, supporter of the dictator Assad. Absolutely. Uh, but you've got Pete Buttigieg running for president and sort of in there in the polls on the uh, as, a, as a potential candidate. And he served in Afghanistan and is for pulling out. In fact, the entire democratic field wants to pull out of Afghanistan well, and pull out of everywhere. I—, I, I you know, I have a lot of respect for, for Tulsi Gabbard's service and for Pete Buttigieg's service. Um, I agree. I don't ever think there's a downside when we see a member of Congress who decides to continue to serve their country. I agree with that. And so, you know, glory to all of these people. I think the interesting point that uh, Mike Waltz made, in addition to the, how few veterans there are, is his initiative for national service. I hope we're going to get a chance to talk to him about that. Absolutely. Well, we'll go back on Capitol Hill and have another discussion with him. If you like that discussion, let us know. Uh, and we'll go. Back, we'll be happy to go back to Mike Waltz's office and hear more from him, because I think he's somebody we should have on more often. Yeah, please reach back to us and let us know your feedback on all of our podcasts. We're interested in uh, better serving the public in whatever way we can. So email us at whatthehell@aei.org. Additional information and the email will repeat in the closing credits. Thanks a ton, and thanks to Representative Waltz. Thanks for listening. Our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@aei.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. 